proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am usually your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. That's right, I said usually the host, because in today's podcast, we're doing something a little different. We've received some requests for me to tell my own story, so I thought it would be fun to ask my friend J.T. Tarter to come and act as the moderator. And as we get started, I thought it might be interesting for the listeners to hear a little story from J.T. about his interactions with me, just so you can get to know me a little bit better. JT, it's all yours, man. Sweet. So I have known Aaron for a total of... Let me do my math real quick. Has it been 18 years, something like that, for a while? My earliest memory of Aaron was he was newly married, and I was in high school, I think, and I believe he, we were at a summer camp where he was one of the pastors, you know, leading his youth group at the summer camp. Now, to my defense, we, I was much skinnier the then, camp had and uh, the ring, and uh, the ring and just to the happened to fly to off when we were throwing somebody Pastor into the Aaron pond, Carr's I think, if I recall the story. wedding ring that he had lost somehow in the in the lake. Do you remember that, Aaron? Now, to my defense, I was much skinnier then. And, uh, just the a little ring, bit. Uh, the ring just happened to fly off when we were throwing somebody into the pond. What's your story? Yeah, um, I was raised in a typical uh, Irish uh, Catholic home. My dad was Irish Catholic, but my mom was actually Scottish Presbyterian. Um, She stopped going to church um, to marry my dad and actually became Catholic. And so that's where the roots of my family heritage uh, were pretty much established. But by the time I kind of came along, what had happened was my dad had had it out with... um, the local parish priest, uh, basically because they were trying to do a remodel of their uh, facility and they were asking for more funds and my dad um, just didn't like their approach. So my dad actually stopped going um, to church and therefore my mom brought us boys back to her heritage, which was uh, the Presbyterian Church. Uh, back then it would have been the United Presbyterian Church. Um, can, can't really say that the gospel was preached at the church that my, um, my uh, mom would have taken us initially to, but it wasn't very long before a church planter who happened to be a Presbyterian came knocking on um, our family door, and my mom started sending us boys and going herself, and that happened to be a denomination called Bible Presbyterian, which really was a fundamentalist Presbyterian outfit. Um, Bible Presbyterian split from Machen and the OPC in 1938 under a guy named Carl McIntyre. And we're talking, this is by now like 1980 is when this guy's planting a church. 
And so from that point on, 1978, I guess, 1980s, um, my whole upbringing was primarily through this um, fundamentalist Presbyterian um, denomination. And it was there that I, I, we attended church, but my dad didn't go. And all along the way, I just was really struggling to figure out, you know, what, what is my faith? Do I believe this? Do I not believe this? Um, there were some of those crisis moments of, um, is this stuff true? And gradually, I could see God's sovereign hand drawing me in more and more. Um, I made a profession of faith, but I think like a lot of, of kids who grew up in, um, in more of a... Uh, uh, an evangelical background, you hear the gospel a lot, and you wonder, did I say it right? <laughs> Do I, did I did I mean it enough when I prayed it? And so you find yourself praying the sinner's prayer over again and over again. And it came to a place where um, about 16 to 17, um, the youth ministry, which was all volunteer-led, um, was actually being taken over by my best friend, who was three years older than me. And he was the first guy that I ever knew that actually took the Bible um, and actually was reading it um, that I could actually say that I, I was aware of. Um, I grew up with Bibles all around me, but to watch him actually um, reading it and really um, wrestling through with what it was saying, um, that was kind of the thing that sparked in me. And we started reading through um, the book of James. We hit Romans. Um, those early things were so foundational. And we would get in debates about Calvinism, all those kinds of things. You think about 16, 17 years old, it's kind of a weird stuff to be hitting. But we, um, we had about a youth group of about 20 kids, and I'd say most of us to this day still um, profess Christ, still walking with the Lord, involved in various church ministries. So I look back on that heritage and think it was very rich. We had a good pastor who preached, uh, preached the gospel, um, clearly um, um, kept the atonement of Christ front and center. Um, and so that was kind of my heritage. It was about 18 when I really was starting to feel the call to ministry. I was wrestling between going towards sports medicine, which is what my brother did, and getting involved in church ministry and seeing, seeing the influence that my, my friend had, his involvement at that time of InterVarsity um, at Wayne State University, and trying to figure out what direction I wanted to go. Um, I felt like a, a, a church ministries or some type of thing like that would be something that would be um, what I want to do with my life. And so, uh, long story short, I ended up enrolling at a small Christian college. Um, didn't know anything about it, really. My cousin had went there, but um, I had never even had it on my radar. And me and a couple of my friends enrolled <laughs> who also were interested in, in uh, church ministry. And there we were in Clearwater, Florida at a small fundamentalist uh, Bible college called Clearwater Christian College. And that's where I got my uh, uh, kind of my initiation into uh, Bible and doctrine and church ministry and uh, my kind of my start. Cool. Oh, that's great. Um, so your story is really interesting because you you I mean, I know your 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 father ended up becoming a believer a number of years later, and I'm sure you'll, you can you'll probably get to that story later. But um, your story is very similar to kind of almost like a Timothy situation where um, your mother, your mom was really the the main backbone spiritually in your family. Um, would who would you say became kind of the Paul for you or like the spiritual father? You know, as you were growing up, that's that's a great question. Um, and yeah, I, many times I've looked at my life as like being 
in many ways a Timothy. Because in Timothy's life, it was his mother and his grandmother. And in my life, it was my mother and grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother played a strong um, central role in my faith. Um, you know, when I said I didn't see people reading their Bible, that was just, I meant from like friends level kind of, because my, I saw my grandmother's Bibles wore out. Um, just underlining and reading, and and she had a strong prayer life. Uh, even to this day, I look back on my time, even through seminary and stuff. It was my grandmother I'd always call and say, "Hey, pray for me. I got a Hebrew exam." You know, <laughs> um, so she played a vital role. And yes, my mother, um, my mom is somebody I've always looked at as, as a very simple faith, but a strong, simple faith. Mm-hmm. She takes God's word, she believes what He says, and she just lives her life that way. And I think she's imparted that um, to me. But your question is, who was a Paul? I think God had given me lots of people that I would say were kind of pulling me along. One was uh, the best friend I mentioned. I actually had a, a, there was two or three of us that ran around together. And those, that group of guys were kind of my equals, but we, we spurred each other on to read the Bible, to debate theology, that kind of thing. But it wasn't um, until I entered uh, Clearwater Christian College that I found Um, My first real Paul, his name was Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson uh, was uh, worked for Clearwater College. Um, He literally pulled me into his office, um, regularly prayed over me, regularly took walks with me. If he was doing something in his house, he'd have me over to, to work with him and was just talking about life. He opened up about his own struggles. Um, talked about uh, the importance of the gospel in his life. And I learned how to disciple primarily through Brian. And so I think that's when I really learned what discipleship looked like. And I think that was the first time I saw an older man really lead me as a dad. And so to this day, I I talk about Brian Johnson as being my spiritual father. Hmm. That's great. Um, So you're at Clearwater Bible College. Um, you go through the process there. You remain, you remain a strong Presbyterian uh, through going through through Clearwater. What was the next process look? Where, where, where'd you go next? Yeah, you use the phrase strong Presbyterian. It's interesting because I never really viewed myself as a Presbyterian growing up. Um, I believed in Calvinism. Um, I was probably a, a arch defender of the five points uh, <laughs> in my Bible at a very young age. I think like literally 16, I had uh, Tulip written down and all right. the cross references to defend uh, my position, if you will, on that stuff. But it wasn't till later that I started to realize we were Presbyterian because the church I came from, well, it had a strong view of the sovereignty of God. It was dispensational. I mean, right mm-hmm. next to our Westminster Confession of Faith, which we hardly picked up, um, was the, the um, Schofield Study Bible. And I could tell you more about what Schofield said growing up than I could what the Westminster Confession said. And so it was gradual as I started really embarking more on the sovereignty of God, picking up guys like R.C. Sproul um, and Table Talk, I think were instrumental in my development and realizing that there was a rich Reformed heritage. And as I really started pressing in on that, realizing the Westminster Confession of Faith, I picked it up, started reading it. And really started to understand more the the great um, treasure that the confessions were. Um, when I was, I served as a youth pastor at the very church I grew up. Um, I think it was during those years that I really learned how to begin to apply the Westminster Confession to my study and kind of act as guardrails in the things that I was teaching. 
Um, I was surrounded by some other guys that were also in ministry that were virtually doing the same thing. We had taken a seminary course that was a denominational seminary all the way out in Tacoma, Washington. Um, we were we would go out there for a month or so and then come back and we'd be doing reading in between and writing papers and that. And it was during that time that I was really developing my what I'll call strong Presbyterian roots. And I realized I needed... I needed to be more grounded on this stuff. And that's when I decided to enroll at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And we, uh, I, I, I resigned from my position and just went there full time. Now, it wasn't like I just quickly made the decision. My father-in-law, who wasn't yet my father-in-law, kind of said, if you want to marry my daughter, you need to speed this process up a little bit. And so there was some encouragement in that, and so that's why I ended up going out to uh, Charlotte as quick as I did. It was about 2001 when I started, and it was enrolled at um, Charlotte. And I was amazed at the riches of Reformed faith. I had known about um, uh, Calvinism, like I said, but Calvin uh, covenant theology was really becoming more and more open to me. Um, in the sense of the things that I was starting to read. Um, there were a few books along the way that began to pick apart my dispensational roots. I remember sitting in a, a, a classroom and one of my professors, Bob Kara, was kind of always, he always used me as the example of what dispensationalists uh, typically held to. He'd say, Pastor, uh, or not Pastor, he'd call him, Mr. Carr, why don't you tell us the uh, the seven dispensations of the uh, of the Schofield Study Bible? And so I would, you know, kind of laugh, and he'd laugh, and we had a lot of fun with that. But I, it was through those years at Reformed Theological Seminary, I really started to appreciate covenant theology, uh, a consistent approach, because um, I was really a mutt. For years, I was a mutt, because like I said, I grew up in a Presbyterian church that wasn't very confessional held to more of a dispensational um, interpretation of Scripture, heavy pre-trib, pre-mill, and yet we baptized babies. We, but we didn't really know why. I mean, as, as younger guys, we couldn't put it all together. We didn't see much of a difference between a John MacArthur and an R.C. Sproul, although we knew that they differed on baptism. It wasn't until later that I think all that came together, and I think uh, Reformed Theological Seminary had a huge part to play in all that. Cool. And so I know we, we ask this every, every single podcast, but um, so I'm going to ask you the question as well. As you're going through those, your theological formation, who were uh, who some of the people that you were reading that really helped you progress? And along with that, who's your favorite uh, old dead guy? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things. I stay um, in the vein of the Princetonian uh, theologians. And I know that, um, you know, everybody says, well, you always, you got to have one. Uh, I remember one time hearing Piper speak and Piper said, you know, you really want to pick one theologian and really follow him all the way through. You can disagree with him on stuff, but at least you're being consistent and you're trying to wrestle through those things. But for me, I think it, it's it's a group of theologians and it, it is primarily the, um, the Princetonian theologians. Um, when I look at the Princetonian theologians, it's guys like uh, Charles Hodge, Samuel Miller, Archibald Alexander, and B.B. Um, Warfield. These are the guys that I really camp out on under. Um, I read Charles Hodge's systematics cover to cover. Um, I was really um, uh, impacted by A.A. Hodge, the outlines uh, of theology, his confession of faith commentary. 
Um, B.B. Warfield, uh, Authority and Inspiration, one of the early books that I read. Those were, those were the guys that really impacted the way I think, the way I handle Scripture. But I think from their lineage, my favorite, theo, you know, favorite theologian was uh, Machen. And I, I think part of that goes back to the fact that Machen, um, all of those guys that I just mentioned, um, have uh, they're, they're, they're Presbyterian, they're conservative Presbyterian, and yet none of them were anti-revival. Um, which is kind of weird, but 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 all of those guys with Archibald Alexander has some roots in revivalism, or even if if you go as far as B.B. Warfield, they they all had some kind of lineage to that. And I've always had an appreciation for the Great Awakening, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Um, you know, you you look at guys like Gilbert Tenney and in, in that, and I understand there's some tension there between. Uh, Presbyterian circles and all that, but I think that's one of the reasons why I've always appreciated the Princetonians. But then you get to a guy like Machen, and you really begin to realize what a prophet he was and able to stand out, and yet he stood on the shoulders of B.B. Warfield. He stood on the shoulders of these Princetonian giants when he was defending the faith, um, the Christian faith, in the in the face of modernism. And so I think one of my favorite books of all time is uh, Christianity and Liberalism. And I understand probably some of that comes from my fundamentalist roots. And, and, and uh, one of my own professors, uh, John Frame, uh, wrote, a, wrote an article um, called Machen's Warrior Children. And I, and I get it. I, I see it. But I can't help but not love Machen and what he stood for and really how he defended the Christian faith. And I think, again, he's just stood on the, the Princetonians. Cool. So with Machen, would you say, just for our listeners' sake, would you say that Christianity and Liberalism is a good book for them to start if they're going to start reading some Machen, or where would you where would you lead them yeah, to? Yeah, the, the Christianity and Liberalism is the book that I think most people think about when they think of of, of Machen. There's other books. What is Faith, um, I think, is, a, is, a, is an important book. Um, these are all books that require the person to understand contextually there were some things that were different. You can't just um, be in our time and period and not understand what was going on when he was writing these things. But definitely, I think any of those um, are manageable for somebody who's a reader of theology. It's a, it's a must read. And it's a must read from the standpoint of it really begins to ask you some deeper questions about what am I willing to negotiate on and what am I willing not to and I love the fact that he talks so clearly about how our terms, our theological Christian terms, are being hijacked by, by liberals. And we need to be willing to, to fight that stuff. You know, why don't they just start their own denominations, their own Christian religion, their own non— you know, don't even call it Christian, just their own um, religion, and quit hijacking our stuff. And I, I think he's dead right about that. Mm. Oh, that's great. So, so you're at RTS Charlotte. You're studying, you're studying. Where, where did that, uh, I guess, you know, as far as, where, where did that lead you to then? Yeah, when I was there, um, I was primarily camping out in the PCA. Um, that's really where I found I fit best. Um, I was doing some residencies and stuff in different um, PCA churches. In fact, one of them I did, um, uh, 
what they called an internship, but it was a little bit more than just your basic intro internship. But it was in uh, Ellerby, North Carolina, which is in the hills of North Carolina, First Presbyterian Church. I appreciate that church immensely for its love on a northerner like me <laughs> when I was deep in the hills of, 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 of the south. Um, but you could just see they had a love for our, for their for their heritage, but they had a love for the Word of God. They had a love for truth. And um, I think it was um, under the pastor there that he, he was really pouring into me. He gave me some opportunities to preach. I was really beginning to formulate what I'll call new covenantal, uh, renewed uh, confessional uh, understandings. I was becoming more and more sacramental in my understanding of things, the role of baptism, the role of, of, of communion. These things, again, remember, I, it's weird for me to say this because I was not at a Baptist or Anabaptist background. I had a Presbyterian heritage. Um, and even before my Presbyterian heritage, I had a Catholic heritage. And so there was a sacramentalism that I grew up in. But I don't think, I think because of its dispensationalism in, in those days, that I wasn't given, uh, I didn't understand all of the truth that I was being exposed to during my uh, seminary days. Mm-hmm. And I think as I was really formulating that, I really decided I really fit well into the Presbyterian context, a conservative Presbyterian context, whether that was the OPC, PCA. And um, my wife really wanted to get back home. We're from Michigan. And of course, when at the time I was coming back home, there were no PCA churches here. Uh, there was only, I think, one or two OPC churches, and they were m- far north from where we grew up. And so when we came back home, we tried to fit back into our Bible Presbyterian heritage, and it just knew it wasn't a good fit anymore. And um, although the elders there tried to make it work, and I tried to go back to my old position as youth pastor, it just eventually we knew knew this thing was not going to work, and I needed to leave. And so we looked, and I actually began teaching for a couple years. And, And this is the funniest part. Here I was more convicted about Presbyterianism, more convicted about uh, sacramentalism, more convicted about um, covenant theology, and I was now teaching at a uh, Assembly of God uh, Christian school. <laughs> and I remember when I sat down with the uh, the principal or, or, or the director of the school, I told him clearly what, where I was at, and his exact words were to me, that, that's absolutely fine as long as you're willing to give both sides of the argument. And I said, absolutely. I just wanted, and and I had a great uh, great time there as I taught for a few years. Um, I was given the opportunity um, to uh, teach some seminary courses at a small Pentecostal seminary. And I taught a history thing uh, there for a little while. That was kind of fun. It stretched me some, but I knew that my calling was the church. And that's what my wife was really encouraging me to get back to. And when we were looking for that, we the church that came calling was an EPC church, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a very conservative EPC church. But um, that was a, a struggle initially as I was kind of wrestling with where's the EPC at, where am I at, and how does all this fit together. But it was a beautiful fit. Um, and to this day, I've been here all 11 years, and it's just been a, a wonderful relationship. Mm-hmm. Cool. And I, I think one of the things that's the – if you can talk about this for a little bit, um, one of the coolest things about your story at First Prez has been your progression just in going from, I mean, you started off in, in a 
if I remember correctly, a junior high internship position. And yeah. then really just went up from there. I mean, <laughs> can I talk about that a little no, bit? No, that's the, the, the true. The, the truth is when they were looking, they weren't looking for me necessarily. They, they had a position that said part-time junior high guy is what they were looking for. My wife was really uh, encouraging me to look back home. So I put some feelers out. I just happened to send my resume and immediately the leaders here um, said, hey, we want to interview you. And I thought, well, I'm not, you know, I won't get that. I'm going to be too qualified for the job. So I'm either going to turn it down or I'm just going to do it in addition to continuing teaching and maybe teaching some seminary classes and stuff like that. But when it all kind of rubbed out, they actually turned it into a full-time position for me and called it family uh, life director because they already had senior high directors and a children's director. And basically, in a sense, I became working in that whole department. We developed a family ministry kind of focus. And um, that was that was fun for, for, for as I established. I learned a lot about entrepreneurship early on because we were developing committees, developing uh, ministries, and there was a lot that I was learning. Um, and of course, you got to remember that was in the heyday of kind of uh, the uh, kind of the the end of the Willow Creek era and all of that. And so, as I was kind of wrestling through what did that look like versus what I believed about sacramentalism and, and and confessionalism and how that operated in a conservative Presbyterian church, and and those were some good times of really learning about myself and how ministry looked. And then from there, um, I was in a place where I was uh, studying for my ordination. They promised me I could do that. I did do that. I got ordained. Um, and then after I got ordained, they quickly moved me from what was in our denomination called an assistant pastor to make it permanent, calling it an associate pastor. I served as an associate pastor for uh, just a couple of years, and our senior pastor ended up getting cancer. And so as he needed time to time for uh, for leave for his to deal with his cancer um me and the other associate because there was two associates we both stepped into an interim position where we operated really as the um the lead pastors together and serving the church as the interim as the entering interim pastors that lasted for about another two years while um we were uh well, a year and a half as we were moving through a process um, for a senior pastor search, and the church eventually um, called me, um, and they changed the position of the other associate to executive pastor. And him and I have been doing kind of this uh, cool dance. It's kind of like a two-headed monster. He takes care of a lot of the administrative aspects, and I take care of a lot of the vision and preaching aspects. And uh, we have worked together to see this 113-year-old church slowly begin to be revitalized. Because um, there were some dark days. Um, I think there were some low points even while I was here in the last 11 years where we were wondering, you know, is this church going to make it or not make it? And so I've gotten to see that and what revitalization looks like. And, yeah. Great. Yeah, let's, let's talk about revitalization. Um, for you, what were some things early on? So I— so I'm talking um, post after you you became the the lead pastor. Um, what were some things you felt were very important early on to establish in order to so the church could could really uh, continue or begin that process? I think of one of the first yeah I think one of the first things we always have to ask when we're at a place is young guys, including myself, we can have the tendency to think we have the right answers. They've been doing it wrong forever. And one of the key things that I began to do was listen to the story of this church. Who are their heroes? 
And as I began to mark down who their heroes were, I wanted to know who their heroes were and why they were the heroes. What things did this church value? Because this church still had good stock. It still had good bones, if you will. Um, a lot of times when I talk about church revitalization, I say it's the it's like being married to the old lady with warts. You, you, you just pray, you, you, you fall in love with her every day. Um, and that's really what I was doing because the whole time I was here, initially the senior pastor and I had talked about me planting. But when I was here, I never felt the peace to leave. And I didn't realize what God was doing all this time as he was leading me eventually to be the lead pastor here. But as um, I never felt released, and we'd visit every so often, he'd say, you think now's the time? No. And then eventually when he got cancer and he was down, and then we got so involved in how can we begin to turn this, this church um, and make it a vibrant uh, community of faith, um, we really began to wrestle with, okay, who are we in our identity in this community? And I remember Dr. Frank Kick once telling us that back in seminary that before you take a job at a church, um, go down to the local gas station and ask the local gas station attendant um, where your church is. And you know where it is, but he just to see if he knows, because if he doesn't know where that local church is, it has really no witness because the gas station attendants, they usually have a pretty good idea where everything is because they're constantly giving out instructions. And I did that just for fun. And very quickly, the gas station says, oh, yeah, that's right down here. And it gave me a good sense that our church was known in the community. And as I began to feel that out, what were we known for? And we began to develop that as an understanding of who we are. But then I really wanted to say, okay, but who does Christ want us to be? And, okay, this is who we are. This is what we're known for. But who does Christ want us to be? And I really began to wrestle through the uh, ideas of what does the Bible say a church should look like and where where are we strong in that respect? And I think one of those big aspects is mission. Um, and while we are 113 years old now, I would say it's just been the last few years that we've really became strong in mission. And when I say strong on mission, I need to say clearly this. Being strong on mission is not um, just having money given to foreign missions, but actually seeing your people evangelize and disciple. I began to ask the question, how can we evangelize better? How can we be on mission better? And that's when God was really given and imparting to me. Maybe that's where that church planning element fits into this whole thing. It wasn't that I was going to be the church planner, but I was going to be a guy to help other church planners. And I really began to try to help my eldership understand that to be missional meant that we needed to be ascending church as much as so it's demonstrated in front of our people about what it is to be um, missional and I really pushed that element with our leadership and really tried to help them see that the best missionaries are people that in a lot of ways are forced <laughs> uh, to be in heavy outreach because otherwise their churches aren't going to make it because I think our church had rode the fumes for so many years off of programs in the past, the roaring 60s that they had when they were really growing and thriving because this area was just being developed and a lot of people were buying houses. And so trying to get us back to that. Well, in that whole process, I thought church planting was a huge uh, help because it surrounded us by by having us interact with planters who had to do that just to make uh, just to survive. And um, a lot of my early uh, people are probably concerned, well, won't that pull people away if we're sending people out? 
but actually it's had the reverse effect. It's drawn more people in, and while we lose some in the sense of sending them out, more and more keep coming. I think that's just God's principle of as we give, he keeps out giving us in the sense of he keeps giving us people and and resources and to date in the last five years we've we've planted three churches and um one in dearborn uh one in detroit and one in ann arbor and i and i don't take credit for any of those other than the fact that god has really partnered us with people that want to be uh, in partnership with us and we want to be in partnership with them but ultimately it's centered around the gospel and so i think Church planting came out of that, and I think that was a big thing. But to get back to your answer or your question, I think there were a couple other things along with mission, which was we had to get our leadership training right because I think in a lot of times you put people in leadership that really don't belong there. It's just because well they're they're business owner, but are they called? Are those guys the ones that that God has called? There's a whole lot of qualifications there. Um, that a person is uh, supposed to meet to be able to be a leader. The other um, one I would say is uh, the role of the confession and the doctrine of the church. So to kind of put this one big picture for you, I think doctrine matters, um, confessionalism. I think leadership matters um, in the sense of leadership training and development, and then mission matters. And I think if you don't have those three things, you really won't be able to revitalize a church. Hmm. Why do you think... Um, revitalization, I mean, church planning has become very popular in the past 10, 15 years. Um, why do you think we're, we hear l- um, less stories of revitalization? And why do you think that, that um, what would you say to the young pastor um, who's at a church and you would encourage him? Because as much as you're, you're passionate about church planning, you're very passionate about revitalization. So what would you say to that? Yeah, last week I had on my friend Tanner Klein, and he said something that has really resonated with me. It wasn't the first time I heard him say it. He he said it a long time ago to me, um, which is there are churches do have uh, lives, you know, uh, and he gave the example of the, Paul's churches. None of them are in existence today. And I think I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think um that a, a church does does have a, a a life period, and eventually it can it can it can go off the face of the earth, and you can't prevent that. And I think that's partly why a lot of people don't think revitalization is as a uh, as a uh, as an easy thing or a normal thing. Is that, well, it's just time for that church to die. And yet, I also know that Christ deeply loves His church, and I think because He deeply loves it, and He's willing to die for it the call to revitalization should be one that we all aspire to because it is the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God that changes hearts, that softens softens hearts. And so I think, coming back to your question of why do I think most people are not excited about revitalization is because in a lot of people's minds, it's just time for a church to die. And number two, I don't think we love the church the way Christ loved the church. And we're not willing to sacrifice for it the way Christ is willing to die for it. And I think the third one is, which is really wraps those two together, it's hard work. Revitalization is hard work because when you go to revitalize, you're dealing with a lot of sacred cows. You're dealing with a lot of people's opinions and their hurts, their baggage. you got to deal with the reputation of a church and a community. You're dealing with past leaderships, but broken promises. And you got to deal with how to make that old church 
fit into a new wine skin in a sense. And it's always said, well, new wine skin belong, a new wine belongs in new wine skin. And I, and I don't think it's as much that we're using wine skins and new wine as much as we're really seeing that, 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 that Christ is alive and well in a community and you're just trying to bring that back. Cool. What, uh, what, what other relationships are, you guys are obviously part of the EPC. Um, what other relationships have you, uh, built as you guys have been trying to, you know, as a church that's never planted a church before, um, at least at that time, um, what were some relationships and what were some connections that you felt like you needed to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think early on I was just praying that God would send us somebody and the funny part of the story is you uh, came here, and I, and I reached out to you, and you came here, and you served alongside us, and you had met a guy in a bookstore. Uh, we interviewed Jeremy Roth some time back. Jeremy was our first church plant, but Jeremy wasn't, he didn't have a tribe. We really didn't know what we were doing with church planting, but we just kind of stumbled through that together. And he was willing to be our guinea pig, and, and, and I was willing to allow him to make the mistakes he needed to make as he kind of tried to figure out how to walk with this church planning thing. But what I realized very quickly from that experience, let's call it that, because it was experience, um, through all of that was that we needed, uh, we needed a tribe that knew what they were doing with church planting. And again, I think um, there was a lot of things that we could have looked at. I know our denomination was kind of hungry towards planting, but hadn't done it well yet. Um, there were a lot of different organizations and outfits out there, Catalyst, other things that were going on. But bottom line was, theologically, I knew the, one of the only ones I knew that we fit was the Acts 29 network because they were uh, more Calvinistic. Um, they were complementarian. Now, there were some things there that I wasn't sure if we would fit. We were an old existing church. Why would Acts 29 want us? Um, we were Presbyterian. A lot of Acts 29 churches are not Presbyterian. And yet, when I began to dialogue with them, I felt very quickly like this is a good fit. And I would say that to anybody who's in the process of revitalizing, to seriously consider making sure that you're walking with a tribe, because there's a lot you learn from each other. And the blessing I've had of being in Acts 29 with guys who are Southern Baptist, guys who are non-nominational, guys who are Presbyterian, it's been very enriching because we can learn from each other and we're not wondering, are they gospel-centered? Are, uh, are they, do they understand the role of the sovereignty of God or the Word of God? These guys get that. Um, what we may differ on is issues like baptism and some other things, but planting and, and the sovereignty of God and the Word of God, those things were all intact. Great. What's, what's in the pipeline right now as far as, uh, you, know, you know, you already mentioned planted Jeremy Roth, um, Redeemer Community Church, and a Dearborn. Uh, what are the current church, uh, church plants that First Pres is working with? Working yeah, on? We, like I said, we, we have, we've planted three in the last five years, and the, the two of the three are, like, very fresh. Jeremy Roth and Dearborn. Um, which is Redeemer, and then we planted Redeemer with Jim Mong in Ann Arbor, and they're already holding worship services and rolling. And then um, 5.7, which is Brian Evans, we're going to have him on as a guest uh, here sometime soon. He's, he's born and raised in Detroit, uh, an African-American man who had read Calvin's Institutes cover to cover, and God just allowed us to meet through a mutual friend, and we began to pour on him and realize this is a guy that we really wanted to see raised up to plant in, back in the neighborhood where he grew up. And so we now have a building that we were able to acquire 
he just passed his uh, commission pastor ordination. And that's a whole nother topic for another day, but we had to go an alternative route because of his lack of education. But I mean, he passed his ordination, his commissioned ordination uh, amazingly, and everybody was amazed at how well. So it just shows that while seminary and uh, those postgraduate degrees have, have their place, they're not everything. And so we've been working with him, and he is going to be holding services uh, in the not-too-distant future, so we consider him already being planted. But we're, we started a residency program, which is a paid residency. Um, we try to have uh, one, two, one to two residents constantly in the program who we're producing and, and, and eventually spitting out into the community. Um, we hold a weekly cohort uh, on Wednesdays through our church um, where we bring in speakers and allow the, the church planners, um, whether they're part of us or not, it doesn't matter, just so they can come and, and share and learn from one another. And those are a lot of the things we got going on. And then obviously God really laid on my heart to start the Confessional Collective and meeting with a, a, a band of brothers and talking about what that could look like. And we started the podcast because it was a way to reach out to others. And, and one of the things that most amazed me was people's passion to see um, uh, they got it right away. I guess is what I'm trying to say. They got the need for the confession and mission. Because I think too often people can be theologically minded, but there's no mission, or you think you need to give up theology for mission. And in my understanding, it's both. And I think that comes back to revitalization, to planting, just to being a good pastor. You've got to disciple your people to be on mission, and you do that by, by teaching good theology. And so confessional collective is just at its very roots. And I've had the privilege of sitting with some different guys and really excited about the encouragement I've gotten from various pastors, professors, and we've been able to have a host of them on. And I'm very excited about the future of different guys that have already signed on to do the podcast and share with us. It's exciting to see what God's doing, and I really believe that he's up to something. And so all of those things to say, there's some good stuff coming forward, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, let me let me close with this question. What is your because um, I feel like as I've listened to the pod, different podcasts, um, you haven't gotten to necessarily share this this full out um, vision, if you will. Um, what's your vision for the Confessional Collective? What's your hopes, your dreams? What do you feel like God's laid on your heart as far as where it's going? Yeah, I don't see the Confessional Collective as being um, necessarily a um, a a a, a uh, what am I trying to say? As, as, as a one group network, but as a group, groups all over um, in different communities, pulling people together based upon their confessional roots and keeping them um, on mission together. And so my hope is to see that, number one, we're just encouraging other guys to think about what they can do in their own neighborhoods. Um, reaching across uh, denominational lines and saying, as long as we're confessional, you know, you may be 1689 and I may be Westminster, but we're close enough and we both understand and appreciate the historicity of the role of, of, of confessions that we have more in common than that we don't. And let's, let's uh, link arms and let's help to plant and establish and revitalize confessional churches in our neighborhood, in our, in our, uh, in our region. And so I would love to see that happen. I've already had conversations with guys in California. I've had conversations with guys um, down south. And so I know that guys are contemplating it. But I guess my dream is that it's not just a dream anymore, but it's becoming more and more reality. And, um, you know, obviously, any way we can help 
but I, I just don't want it to become a national thing. I think as soon as you do that, you destroy it because I think the grassroots of guys just reaching out across party lines and building relationships with their, with their pastors, uh, friends across the, across the nomination lines is huge. Um, I do believe, uh, that churches can be planted by, um, you know, we've helped to plant an, a Southern Baptist church, but the guy's confessional. Um, he may not be Westminster, but he's 1689 and we were excited about, about him. And so we, we helped plant Jeremy. Um, we have also planted a Westminster confession guy and we've watched a Southern, couple Southern Baptist guys help pour some stuff into him. And that's exciting. That's already a dream. Um, it kind of ties back to the John 17, 21, you know, they would be one as we are one. And, and I think that's the bigger line. And I think our oneness comes from our confessional uh, tie. And I, and I think that's where we can look back and say, we are within, um, you know, the hallways and the doorways of, of C.S. Lewis and how all that works. Cool. Well, I've appreciated this. I hope uh, have, I haven't bored people too much with my story. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of exciting just to relive all that stuff in my mind. Um, we hope you keep listening. We got some exciting uh, people to be talking to in the next uh, few weeks ahead, and so hopefully you will uh, uh, have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective podcast. For more information and resources, please visit professionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.